So if we haven't met before, my name's Anna. It's great to be here. Um, so we're continuing our series in Philippians, as Pete said. And I have to say, I have absolutely loved reading this book. Um, and I encourage you to read it at home or um, keep reading it if you've already read it before. Um, because it's just really good as we're walking through this series to keep kind of staying in it. And one of the reasons I've loved this series is because I think it's just been really fun to go deep into Scripture. Um, right as we started this series, someone from our congregation actually got back from a, a trip, and she'd spent her summer holiday going off to a country where it's illegal to, to own and possess a Bible, and she was smuggling Bibles in there. And it was that hearing that story and, and com- kind of combining it with us sitting in Philippians, it's really challenged me just to, and, and kind of almost stirred up this love for the Bible. And I think um, having spoken to a few other people, it's doing the same in um, others as well. And the other reason that I just really like Philippians, and this says a lot about me, is that no one's getting told off in this letter, which is just so much fun because in a lot of Paul's letters, he's always having to write to them like they're a pain in his backside. And he has to say to them like things like, no, it's not appropriate to sleep with your father's wife. That's not okay. But in this letter, it's just clear how much he loves the Christians in Philippi. And I've just absolutely loved like reading it and hearing just the deep affection that he has for these people. Another reason I've loved it, and this is incredibly geeky, so just let me have it, is because when you often read some of the books of the Bible, you kind of have to have this um, this knowledge of kind of Jewish imagery. But he's speaking to a group of um, people and to a church that don't have any of that heritage. And as John said in his first talk, that there weren't even enough Jews in Philippi to have a synagogue. So occasionally you hear Paul referencing Old Testament language, but it's just because that's just a normal part of his, his kind of vocabulary. It's a bit like um, Hugh Grant in Notting Hill, like with his Britishness, oopsie daisies, just kind of falls out of his mouth. And that's what happens with Paul. It's just like Jewish imagery just kind of falls out of his mouth. And he has to do the work of like translating his meaning to, so he can meet them on their terms. And we'll pick things up as we go through and see where he's doing that. And the final reason that I've just loved focusing on this book is because at the absolute center of it is Jesus. That Paul's life at the time of writing this letter is he's in prison and the whole argument around it, it all hangs on Jesus. And it doesn't make sense unless Jesus is the son of God who died and rose again. And if you take Jesus out of this letter, it all falls apart. Paul's in prison talking about rejoicing, saying things like to live is Christ and to die is gain. And without Jesus, that statement is absolutely absurd in that circumstance. But if Jesus is who he says he is and he really did what Paul believes that he did, well, then Paul's absolutely right. Because the argument is that he gains more with Christ than he could ever lose. And I want to throw out this really quite... um, This very big question right at the beginning, because it's a question that's haunted me as I've been reading this book. It's, does your life make sense without Jesus? Does my life make sense without Jesus? If you took Jesus out of my life, how different would it really be? And I think what Paul is encouraging the church in Philippi to do, and by extension us, is he's encouraging them to, to, to live a life where if people were to read the story of your life, they would have to conclude that it's founded and entirely based on the person of Jesus. And what Paul does in this section is he gives us three examples of ex- people who've given their lives for Jesus and whose lives don't make sense unless Jesus is who he says he is. And the first one is Timothy, Epaphroditus, and then finally Paul himself. And we're going to work through those different stories. 
Um, but before we do that, there's just a little bridge that Paul gives us from between um, those stories and what Pete spoke about last week. Therefore, therefore, therefore indicates that everything he is about to say, everything we are about to read has everything to do with what he's just said. So we can't really go on any further without having a look at what he's just talked about. And if you haven't um, heard Pete James's talk, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it um, because it kind of sets the foundation really for the whole book. Everything hinges on that hymn that Pete read out to us a little bit earlier. Like who Jesus is, what Jesus is like, is the center and the cornerstone of this book. And Pete spoke about last week how Jesus was redefining honor, that he was choosing um, to, unlike everyone else uh, who was kind of working their way up to being a ruler, Jesus was, is the king and he chose to come down and be and to serve us. He chose to pour himself out, showing us what true divinity actually looks like. And everything Paul says is built on that way of life. And I have to say, as I've been going through this book, another horrifying thing has struck me. And it's been very disturbing. And it's to discover that Pete Hughes is actually right. And it really pains me to say it because the way of Jesus really does look like this. It actually does. That Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider quality with God something to use to his own advantage. But rather he made himself nothing, becoming by very nature a servant. And it is him who God has exalted and honored the name above all names into whom every knee will bow under heaven and on earth. The way up is via the way down. And when I look at that picture, when I see that, I just can't help but think of the story of Jesus um, in the book of John, where in the night he was betrayed, he gets his disciples together. He gets his friends together and he takes an, out a towel and he starts washing their feet. He takes on the job of not just the servant, but actually the lowest of the low servant. And it includes his betrayer. And then he turns to them and he says, no servant is greater than their master. As I have done this for you, you do it for others. And we can't look at that and, and think that God doesn't call us into the same way of life. We can't run away from us from it, the fact that that is what he's inviting us into, that same movement. So, therefore, my dear friends, we're moving very slowly for such a long passage. I do apologize. It will speed up. So, my dear friends, or it could be interpreted, my beloved. The Greek word is agapeo, which is derivative from agape, which is the Greek word for divine love, unconditional love. So, when Paul's speaking to these people, these are people that he really loves. He loves them with an unconditional love. And when you really love someone, you really care about their well-being. You want the best for them. And we need to remember that because when Paul starts suggesting some of the things that he suggests later, it seems to it that it's actually not, uh, it seems to advise the Philippians to live in a way of, of life that doesn't actually seem to be for their benefit. So everything we've got to read, we're going to read has to come through the lens of the therefore of what he's already said about Jesus. And we've also got to remember that Paul loves these people, that he wants the best. What he's advising them is for their best and it is for their good. So, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, when you look at that, it seems like there's a little bit of a contradiction. It's like the, we're working out our salvation, but then God is doing a work as well. Like, who is actually doing the work in our salvation? It's a bit confusing. So just to kind of break it up a bit, the first one, us, our work, 
He's talking to them about working out their salvation, and it's linked to their already obedient lives, that they have a history of obedience. And Paul is encouraging them to continue living that way. As a saved people, people in Philippi, saved by the actions and faithfulness of Christ, continue to walk as free people. Salvation is both something that's happened to them and it's happened to us, but it's also happening. It continues to happen to us. You may have said yes to Jesus a week ago, a year ago, 10 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, But every day we choose, we live, we will our obedience. That is our work. Our work is to, to will ourselves to be obedient to Christ. And secondly, the work that God does is the ergon. And this verb is linked to energizing. So he's saying to them, you choose by your will to be obedient and God will come and energize it. He will provide the necessary energy and power behind your obedience. And I'd love to go into all of this in more detail, but as you heard, it's a really long passage we've got to get through. Um, But just to say, um, sometimes we can be in danger, I think, when we talk about salvation, of kind of truncating, of, of limiting salvation to just be about believing the right things. I'm saved because I believe the right things. And I agree with all the different things that Christians agree with. And that's kind of like the end of it. And yes, we have a creed that we kind of gather around, and that's really important. It's absolutely vital. But actually, our salvation doesn't just end in believing the right things. It's not like we're just going to get a test and we have to answer all the right things correctly. What Paul is encouraging the Philippians to is so much more, something so much bigger than just believing the right things. He's saying your salvation isn't just saying yes to Jesus once. It's a continual life process of saying yes to him again and again and again, day after day. Yes, I choose to follow you, Jesus. And he's encouraging to live that kind of life where the narrative of their lives would communicate their salvation. And the way he says in which you walk in obedience is through fear and trembling. And for me, that kind of phrase, fear and trembling, has almost conjures up almost abusive language. And um, to try and make it a little bit more warm and fluffy, I thought I'd literally add some fluff to it by telling you a story about my dog. So this is, um, this is uh, my first dog, Sabi. Um, as you can tell, I was a bit younger. And um, I've two, two, Sabi had two habits. Um, and the first one has no relevance to the talk, but it's cute. Um, and the second one is more relevant. But the first one, um, he, used to, we, he used to love me. Obviously, you can tell he's not trying to get away from me there in that photo. Um, but uh, when I'd go to school, he would go into my room and he would take things out of my room. And he would just um, put it under his nose. He wouldn't chew it, but he'd just put it under no- his nose so he could smell me when I wasn't there. It's cute. It'd be weird if it wasn't a dog. Um, number two, his other habit. So Sabi had this habit of when he saw my dad, who he thought was the alpha, it was actually my mum, um, of rolling on his back and when he was a puppy letting out a bit of wee. Um, but he kind of grew out of the wee thing. But dog psychologists would tell you that that is the ultimate sign of submission. By them rolling on their back, they're basically displaying their most vulnerable part, exposing what is like the usually hidden self and effectively disabling themselves from running away. So what they're showing you when they roll over like that isn't that they just respect you, but they also trust you as their leader. And this is the posture that Paul is encouraging the Philippians to take. Make yourself vulnerable. Make yourself exposed, defenseless before God because he's actually trustworthy. Like live your life in a way that is open to God. Let him lead you. Let him do the leading. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purposes. He is good purposes. 
He's a good God. And Paul is saying, let him do that good work in you. You've been saved. Let him continue to save you. You've been set free. Let him continue to set you free. Paul is saying to them, don't give up. I know the situation that's bad. I know I'm in prison. I know that you're experiencing persecutions, but keep going. And then he provides us this, with this kind of phrase, which is the opposite um, posture of fear and trembling. And it's grumbling and arguing. And this is a reference to the Israelites in the story of Exodus. And Paul would have told this group of um, Christians about the story of the Israelites because it undergirds everything that we kind of believe. And he talked about, he would have told them about how this, this nation, this group of people had been slaves in Egypt. And then God did this amazing thing where he magnificently rescued them out of slavery. And by grace, he took them out of slavery. And then he said, I'm going to send you to a promised land, a good land. But as soon as they start going, they very quickly start grumbling and arguing, God, you haven't provided us with food. God, you've given us no water in this desert. We actually want to go back and we want to go back into slavery. We'd rather be die in Egypt than die here in the desert. They start worshipping a golden calf. They start grumbling against Moses. There's no sense of submission. There's no sense of trust. There's no sense of vulnerability, gratitude, awe, and thankfulness. Rather, this is arrogance, turning away from God, fighting against him, ungrateful and this hardness of heart. They forget what he has done for them and they've forgotten their salvation. And what Paul is saying is don't forget what God has done for you. Don't forget your salvation. Paul's saying to them, grumbling and arguing, that's not what children of God look like. Don't forget what God has done with you. That's not how children of God behave. And why is Paul so concerned with their obedience? He's talked about it twice now and keeps going on about it. Why is he so concerned about it? And the reason he's so concerned about this group of people that he loves so much is because he knows what God can do through obedient people. He knows that if this group of people actually live like Jesus, their lives will be starkly different to the rest of the people around them in Philippi, that they will stand out. He says they will shine like stars in the sky. And the, the, the word stars is actually like referring to bodies of light. And the word sky is actually cosmos. So it could be read, you will shine like the sun and the moon in the cosmos. Your salvation is so much bigger than just you. It's of cosmological significance. And if you walk, if you walk in obedience... If they live like Jesus in Philippi, as servants of the gospel, the good news of Jesus will spread. People in Philippi would taste the good news, the goodness of God. They would see the kingdom of God. The sick would be healed. The blind would receive sight. The captives would be set free. That's why he's so concerned about their obedience. That's why he's saying live this way. Because if the community looked like Jesus, Philippi would be transformed. And if we, if we at KXC took this seriously, of looking like Jesus, how to um, imagine what London would look like. And it's worth letting your imagination go there. Imagine if we actually served London the way Jesus served and the way that Paul speaks about Jesus serving. Let your imagination go there. But not for too long, because we're moving on. So the bridge is over, and then we move into him talking about Timothy. And it seems like he goes on this different track because he starts boasting about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And to, um, to kind of understand this, we're, a, few, a few points we're going to um, stop and look back at the honor-shame culture that Pete started talking about last week. Because it's, to- it's a really vital way of kind of interpreting what Paul is saying. 
And what Paul is doing in honoring, honoring Timothy, um, he, he's honoring Timothy. But um, when Paul was talking about Jesus and redefining the route to honor, what he's not doing is doing away with honor. He's not binning honor as a concept. What Paul is doing is saying like this, this culture of honor is really important. But what I'm going to do is take your co- concept of honor. I'm going to baptize it and I'm going to show it to you in a different way, in a Jesus-shaped way, because it's absolutely right to honor people. Psalm 8 says that human beings are crowned with glory and honor, that they're made a little lower than God. But it's really interesting because look what he honors Timothy for. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone else looks out for their own gains, their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with a father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. Timothy's life imitates Christ's. He pours himself out for others just like Jesus did, as um, Paul had been talking about just before. He looks to the interests of others just like Jesus did. And Timothy has become a servant just like Jesus was. And he's proved it by his serving of Paul. And for me, when I've, I've kind of read little bits of, um, of Timothy and Paul's story, I've always kind of felt this like a bit, little bit of envy when I hear of their relationship because I've always kind of wanted a, a Paul-type mentor. I've wanted to be like the Timothy and have a Paul. And, um, and, and as I've been studying this particular bit, I've been really challenged by their relationship because for me, when I wanted someone who would look like Paul, what I was actually thinking is, I really want someone who's going to invest in me. I want someone who's going to pour into me. I want someone who's going to support me and encourage me and train me and challenge me. But that isn't what's happening here. It's the complete and utter reverse. Timothy, the mentee, is the one who's pouring himself out. He's the one that's supporting Paul. He's investing in Paul's ministry. He's, Timothy is encouraging Paul and ensuring that Paul's ministry keeps going. And when I understood that, I was like, oh, that's a real challenge to my narcissistic approach to mentoring. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who's thought like that. I'm sure that I'm not the only person who's had, had that kind of attitude to a relationship that you might want, whether it's a friendship or whether it's marriage or whether it's the church or parents or mentors, whatever it might be. We so often go into relationships of what I can get out of it, rather what I can give. And that's not what Timothy is like. And that's not what Paul is honoring here. But I also think we could apply it to work, particularly in London, where we live in a really competitive culture where there's this need to make yourself stand out and look out for your interests, to make sure that you have the best opportunities and make sure that you get ahead. And I wonder, like, what might it look like if we kind of went into work um, with a Timothy attitude, with our line managers, with our co-workers? If KXC tomorrow morning went out, everyone went out and started showing genuine concern for the people around them, looking out not for their own interests in this competitive environment, serving other people's visions, not your own. Like, how might that look? How might that change your working environment? Okay, anyway, so that's Timothy. Paul talks about Timothy. And then he moves on to someone else who they know a bit better, Epaphroditus. Um, and again, for, to understand this account of Epaphroditus, we need to go back to the honor-shame culture because there are different ways of getting honor. 
Um, there, was, there was the first way was um, inherited honor. So if you were born into a good family that was honored, you would naturally inherit that, that, um, that honor and that name and that prestige. But also if you were adopted into a family, it didn't matter whether you were born into it or not. If you were adopted member of the family, you would receive the same honor, inherited honor. But then there was also ascribed honor, honor that would be given to you by other people. And the first way you could get that is um, through by being a soldier. To be by being brave, by having victories in battle. It could be that you were an athlete, and that's why the Olympics were so important. You're going to get crowns and honor for your, um, the, the town that you came from. Um, there would be professional status, and Pete has kind of talked about that, the, kind of the public glory, sort of the route to, to honor. Um, benefactions, if you paid for something in the town, so if you paid, if you were rich and you paid for the building of whatever it might be, like a library or whatever, you would get honour. Um, if the, you exemplified virtues, the, some of the Roman virtues, you would get honour. And if you had the good fortune to win yourself honour, then you would get ahead. You would get like maybe a statue. You, um, people would then marvel at that said statue. You would get fame, you would be seen, your name would be known and talked about. And you'd maybe get a crown. You kind of have this kind of godlike honor. And one of the important things you'd get would be titles as well. So when Timothy starts talking about Paphroditus, he starts using titles. Like their ears would have pricked up. Like he's talking about him as a brother. That's family honor in that, being one of the Christ-like ones. He, and Paul is saying Epaphroditus bears the resemblance of Christ, that he's a brother of mine. That he is a co-worker, he's a professional honor, that he's a soldier, not for Rome, but for the kingdom. That he's a messenger, he has a purpose, he's a sent one. That he's a servant, that not, he's exemplifying not just the, the virtues of Rome, but the virtues of Jesus. And to have any title was a big deal. So when Paul gives Epaphroditus five titles, Paul is like laying it on thick. He's saying like, honor this man. And the reason they, um, people think that um, Paul was trying to, to lay it on thick is because it was probably that the um, Philippians wouldn't have received back Epaphroditus with honor. Because in an honor culture, shame and fear are, all, are not far away. And the Philippians might have interpreted Epaphroditus getting sick as and his return as a failure linked to his sickness as a shameful thing. But Paul is insistent that this guy is worthy of honor. Why? Because he almost died for the gospel, that he put his life on the line, that he obviously got sick as he was serving Paul. And the word um, that Paul used, risk, is actually a gambling word. And gambling kind of on, um, originated in that area, and it was very popular, kind of hence that like, we have Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. It wasn't so much linked with fate or luck, but rather how pleased the gods were with you. So it was seen as like a religious thing. But Epaphroditus, rather than gamble money, Epaphroditus chooses to gamble with his life. And rather than gambling for his own gain, that he might receive honor and receive victory, he chooses to, honor on, um, to gamble on behalf of others and gamble on behalf of the gospel. And Paul says that is worthy of honor. And you get this sense with Epaphroditus and Timothy that their life isn't their own. That like Paul has been talking about, they consider themselves open and vulnerable before God, like clay in his hand, trusting him with their lives. They're willing to be poured out just like Jesus was. And Paul is honoring them and he's trying to stir in his listeners this desire of like, don't you want to be like these people? Don't you see these stories? Don't you hear this and think, I want to be like that. That's the sort of person I want to be like. And as I've been reading this, I have to say, I've been really struck. I've been like, 
I want to be like that. I don't want to pay lip service to the gospel. I want my, I don't want to waste my life. I want my whole life to be about Jesus. And I read that and I'm like, yes, that's the honor that I want to go after. And Paul, um, and John, when he did his first talk in this series, paused at the prayer of Paul in the, um, and it says, and this is my prayer. This is Paul's prayer for the Philippians, that your love may abound more and more in depth of knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and what is pure and what is blameless. And Paul's prayer is, re- is relevant today as it was for the Philippians, that we might actually be able to discern what is best, that we might actually be able to discern what's truly worth honoring and celebrating and imitating, that we might be pure and blameless, that we might image Christ, that we might extend the kingdom of God, the gospel, wherever we go. And through the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to follow this pattern. The way up is via the way down, and he exalts them for their servant-like lives. And he continues with his argument by then moving in and talking about himself. But rather than using um, where he's been holding them up and saying, like, chase this, follow after this, he starts to talk about what not to follow and what not to run after. And we've been doing our best, um, at least... We've been trying to get our heads around this culture of honor and shame because it's totally different to our culture. It's so foreign. It's such a foreign concept. Um, But we have to imagine that this honor was the currency of the day, that it was something highly sought after, that they would center their lives around. And we've got to imagine that people listening to the reading of this letter, that there would be some in the room who would never experience honor in Philippi. That perhaps when they found Christ, they were even on the edge of suicide because in that shame and honor culture, the way in which, if you brought shame onto your family, the way in which to redeem that was to kill yourself, which is absolutely tragic. And there's no wonder that Paul says, I need to redeem, I need to baptize this concept of honor. So there would have been those people sat in the room, but there would have also been people in the room. And we know that it was probably in Lydia's front room who was a woman that was honored. She was a wealthy woman and highly thought of. And those people would have had the status and they would have a reason to boast because they would have had either inherited honor or ascribed honor. So if you were in either of these two camps, the chances are the desire for honor would still probably have a little hook in your heart. Because it's either something you have never had and you're desperate to experience or something that you have. Either way, it still shapes your identity. And Paul wanted to see them free of any residue lie that these honors that the Philippians were giving them had any value at all. And the way he does that is to show them just how worthless they are. So in Philippi, um, under these statues um, where all these honors would be, or on the side of a building, there would be kind of like this, this little list of who was the person that was being honored, and their list of um, their titles and the reasons why that they were being honored. And it was basically a type of plaque. Now, we might think um, plaque, like who wants a plaque? That's just awkward, like, you know, if someone gave me a plaque, it would just be weird. Um, I, I wouldn't be proud of it. I'd feel uncomfortable about it. I don't even know what would be on it. It'd be like, you know, her dog liked her and she can parallel park really well, which I can. Um, but in this honor and shame culture, this was like the currency. This is what they were direct, directing their lives towards having. They were kind of desperate to have their names, almost like in lights in Philippi, to be one of those named people around the city. And what Paul writes here is basically something very similar to a very similar list to what would have been in one of those plaques. 
And they would have been really familiar with this language and this way of writing. And Paul stops naming some of the reasons why he, before he met Jesus, might have a claim to some of the honors. And his list is pretty impressive. If it's someone who wanted um, familiar honor, like he says that he was part of the people of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, not just a Hebrew, but a Hebrew of Hebrews, that his professional status was as a Pharisee would have been an honored profession. And he was virtuous by following the law. So Paul writes his own plaque, and his listeners would have recognized this type of writing. They would have heard immediately that's what he's doing. Yet what does Paul say about his list of titles? Whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him. He considers it all garbage. The word um, is scubala, which means either it can be interpreted as something that's worth being thrown to the dog's dung or um, a more kind of naughty word for for poo, S-H-I-T. So what he does is he basically looks at these, um, to these people and says that like, you're pursuing these temporary honors inherited by family or other. He looks at it and says, actually, like this list of mine, like where does it belong? It belongs in the garbage heap. It is rubbish. It should be thrown to the dog. It's worthless. It's crap. That's what I say to my list of honors. And that's what he's saying to the Philippians. That's what I want you to do. I want you to look at all those things that people might either ascribe to you, that family honor that you have, those titles that you're trying to pursue. It's crap. It's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. What Paul is pursuing is this, that he wants to know Christ, that Paul is investing himself in the honor of being seen in the likeness of Christ, sharing his sufferings, Choosing the place of service and experiencing the power of the resurrection, the prize, the goal, the victory isn't going to be a crown. It isn't going to be a statue or people's applause. It's going to be totally and completely and utterly Jesus. And Paul might have been talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and himself. What he's describing the whole way through this is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That Jesus is worth pouring yourself out of emptying yourself like Timothy did. He's worth risking your life for like Epaphroditus did. Jesus makes every title and every honor that this world could ever give you look like total and utter crap in comparison to him. And Paul is making this in a very measured way. It was a measured decision. It was where he weighed the loss and the gains. And he's urging the Philippians to make the same choice. And remember, he deeply loves these people. He's saying, this is the best way for you. It's worth it. Give it up. Throw it on the garbage heap. And he stands, he, Paul, stands on the other side of the decision because he's lost his reputation. He's without money. He's without security. He's in a prison. And yet... And yet he still says Jesus is worth it all. He's absolutely worth it all. Paul's sole reason for existence was to be like and to know the one in whose image he was made. To live a life that was worthy of the one who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather he made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Paul's sole reason for existence was to be like and to know Jesus. Paul's life didn't make sense without Jesus. And that's the life he calls us into. To be like, to know Jesus, to be the sole reason for our existence. Why don't we stand?